From beach towels to tea towels and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. Good company and civilized debate with a premium on fun. Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, good day, good evening, and welcome, uh, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, wherever you are. It's a pleasure to have your company. And I've just, uh, I want to, I suppose I should begin with an apology for absence from my post last week. Uh, I was in Buenos Aires and simply couldn't get a solid internet connection from my hotel room. Uh, so hopefully the gods of technology will smile on us uh, tonight. I thought we might begin having watched uh, the first sort of seven or eight minutes uh, of the 6pm news tonight before my brain started to hurt. And this sort of realisation that our mainstream media, one of its principal tasks is to distract us with trivia and that the only issues, you'll, you'll get a smash and grab, a stabbing, a home invasion, a cyclone is always good uh, pictures, but None of the real important issues facing the country ever seemed to get much consideration. I thought I would address one in a bit of a ramble tonight, which revolves around the fairly stark question going into Christmas, a season of poultry, um, porcine, um, you know, uh, lobster, if you're uh, well-heeled, perhaps king prawns and oysters. Do humans have the right to kill and consume animals. And I, I, I address the subject. It's one of those subjects I think you should address at least once in the course of, uh, you know, a, a podcast, radio series, whatever. It's one of the relevant sort of philosophical questions on which our culture seems increasingly racked by doubt. And I'm drawn to the subject out of a couple of sort of incidents, if you like, uh, recently. One of them this week was having to comfort a child trying to go to sleep in some distress after a very large cockroach had uh, taken up its position uh, by the uh, roof corner of her bedroom. Very impressive feat when you think about it uh, for an animal to be able to hang on to a vertical surface. Um, and uh, she couldn't get to sleep with it there because of some sort of primal anxiety. I wasn't around at the time. So another member of the household, who shall remain nameless, uh, arrived with a can of either Mortine or Peebo, liberally applied it to the insect, and uh, that resulted in the cockroach falling from the wall. And then when I did arrive, you know, a child in sort of sobbing tears at the fact that the cockroach had done nothing wrong uh, but was going to suffer a slow and painful death and that it was an inhumane form of treatment. And frankly, I was, you know, quite sympathetic to the view I have indeed, you know, in my part of Sydney, we wind up getting these quite big huntsman spiders that come into the bedroom. And huntsmen, as you may be aware, one of their evolutionary capacities is the ability to spring load their long legs and leap long distances, uh, in some cases onto their prey, which when I tell my children about this capability, uh, does not aid their sleep 
cycle, but nonetheless, I have mastered a technique of taking a largish plastic bowl, you obviously can't do it with glass or porcelain, uh, jamming it completely over the top of the captured insect, then sliding a piece of paper underneath and capturing it, taking uh, the arachnid out of the garden and throwing it away. But the point I would, you know, I prefer to save life uh, where possible. I am a pro-life guy. I think there should be more life and not less. It's one of the reasons why I celebrate the warming of our planet. But the other thing was, you know, I had uh, yesterday uh, caught up with an early Cameron Christmas with most of my seven uh, nephews one of whom attended Sydney University to do an arts degree immediately out of school, and his university career lasted, I think it was one week, might have been two, when he turned up at Philosophy One, and his lecturer walks out in front of a packed lecture theatre of a couple of hundred students, and her opening remark is, raise your hand if you think you have the right to kill animals. And... I would say as a didactic method, I give Sydney University um, zero. Uh, this is not teaching. Uh, this is a form of intimidation for a group of students without warning or preparation demanded to make a public statement about their conviction on a quite difficult subject in front of all of their peers. And he said uh, while he believed that he felt instinctively humans had the right to kill animals, he was reluctant to put up his hand. Indeed, not a single person in the class put up their hand. All of them perhaps equally um, intimidated by this bully, as it turns out, girl um, tactic. So I just want to give you in a few minutes a bit of a ramble on why I think uh, humans have the right to kill animals and um, others, you know, I fully accept that others are entitled to form a different view. But the first of about six reasons I'll go through pretty swiftly if I can, if I don't get too distracted, which is a material risk, um, is that humans um, would not be humans if not uh, for the benefit of animal protein. And I make the simple metric observation that a million years ago, the ancestors of the um, of the anthropo genus of the hominids uh, had a brain cavity, which was between a third and a quarter of the size of our current brain capacity, about sort of 350 uh, cc's. And over the following million years, uh, that brain space has increased by a factor of three or four. So in that sense, we are a completely different organism. The whale, uh, I'm just trying to get my picture quite correct. Haven't got it. You'll have to forgive me. Put up with it. You know, uh, I need my producer to help. Um, you know, there's no evidence of a similar expansion in brain space, for example, of the crocodile, uh, of the marine mammals. Uh, it is the hominid uh, which earns the title Homo sapien, meaning wise, or indeed for the more exuberant Homo sapien sapien, uh, because we acquired a big brain. And the principal thing we may ask, well, what happened a million years ago that turned the tide that set us on this path of expansion of reasoning power? 
And the answer is overwhelmingly uh, the domestication of fire, which meant for the first time we could regularly and habitually eat cooked animal protein. That protein was much more easily digestible, uh, having been cooked, um, than raw. And so if you want to say, does a human being have the right to kill and eat animals? I say to you simply, we would not be anything resembling a human being if we had not done so. The second point I would make for you is that um, not only would we be a completely different organism, indeed, if we had survived at all, as most species don't. Um, but, you know, our ancestors, including the Australian Aboriginal, when, when the Australian Aboriginal arrived on Terra Australis, Espiritus Sanctus, as we describe it, probably walked over, you know, there were over 30 species of megafauna of above 60 kilos, plenty of them between 500 and 1,000 kilos. So we had a sabre-toothed lion that standing up on its back legs was over three metres tall. We had a sabre-toothed kangaroo. We had a goanna that could grow to 23 foot long. We had vast, massive mega snakes. We had a crocodile in Australia that was a sort of partially river-based and partially land-based organism. So I just want, you know, I just simply remind you, if to any bloke's been woken up in the middle of the night and with a nudge uh, from a, you know, a reclining companion saying, can you please go out at the backyard and investigate that noise, you know, possibly the mating call of the possum, which can be quite disturbing when you uh, hear it. I want you to imagine lying an Australian Aboriginal 30,000 BC, lying around a fire not far from the midden and you get the nudge and there is a 26-foot monitor lizard with its tongue out heading towards the uh, baby reclining next to the mother and she says, honey, uh, can you please go and investigate? Um, you know, lots and lots and lots of human beings died in a us-against-them war, which we, in the end, won. The Australian Aboriginal, in my judgment, there is some argument among scholars. So, you know, they're desperate to want to blame climate change or some other cause. But the bottom line is the Aboriginal wiped out the megafauna and in doing so made the continent habitable to us. The next point I would make to you is that all the other animals have the right to kill animals. Um, so if you are a five-metre crocodile in the Mara River, in bloody uh, Tanzania or whatever it is, and you haven't had a feed for six weeks and you hear the rumbling sound of the migration of the bison or the zebra or the antelope or the aardvark. Uh, there is no conference which takes place among the crocodilians saying, um, do we or do we not have the right to tear limb from limb the first zebra that sets foot in this river? Uh, there's no debate among sharks as to whether they may predate on tuna. There's no debate among polar bears about whether they may kill and eat, you know, seals, sea lions, beluga whales. 
So anyone who wishes to say that the human being does not have the right to kill other animals must also make the case that the human being is somehow not an animal. And in my judgment, it's a very difficult uh, case to make. The next argument I would make to you is one of uh, in relation to human rights. Because what we see across the population of humans, um, there has been a very uneven access to the dense uh, protein of our fellow species of animals. And so one of its most obvious consequences is visually is the difference in height. And you can, by simply jumping onto uh, Google or some other uh, deep state search engine, um, and, and ask for a ranking of countries in order of average height of the male and the female. What you find at the top of the list, in particular the, <coughs> excuse me, Danish, Scandinavian, some Eastern European, I think one African, uh, where the average male height is six foot tall. I think that's 100 and maybe it's 180 or 181 centimetres, something like that. Whereas if you go to the bottom of the list to a country like Laos, uh, where my two sons have been spending quite a bit of time, you find that the height of the average male is five foot three. So you have a 11 centimetre difference in average height uh, between the two cultures. And the proposition I put to you ladies and gentlemen, is that it overwhelmingly relates. Laos is a landlocked country, so it has very limited access to marine-based animal protein. It's a very poor country, and so it has never developed substantial domestic herds of quadrupeds, of cattle. It's got a very limited domestic herd of buffalo, uh, but they've never been able to develop herds, as with a lot of developing countries, because they're simply so poor they cannot wait for the following season um, to breed. They have to eat what they have now. And the buffalo, sole one or two, three buffalo, is the kind of ATM of its family, of its tribe. And when the money is required to pay for books or food, you know, off you go to the slaughterhouse. So I say as a matter of human rights, uh, it is incredibly self-indulgent uh, for people like you, me in Australia sitting around, you know, walking into, you know, farmer's market trying to decide between the lamb, the beef, the pork, the chicken, the prawns, the oysters, the crayfish, the fish, to sit around suddenly discovering uh, this uh, sensibility uh, that says I am not somehow al allowed on some ethical principle uh, to consume the protein. And it's one of the reasons why I support the live export of cattle. Now, some will say, and it's one of the reasons why I support horse racing. I support horse racing in part. People say, oh, well, you know, so many of the horses in the end have to be put down because they break a leg in a race, you know, or steeple jumping, whatever. Just say to you, unless there were the motive to breed that horse for racing, trotting, uh, steeplechase, the horse would not exist. And if you asked me if I was the horse, would I rather exist at risk of a final death, uh, the hands of um, a bullet because I'd broken a leg in a race or never exist at all, uh, I would certainly choose the former. 
And I say likewise to all of these vast herds of sheep and cattle, which, you know, Klaus Schwab and other daft left, you shall eat the bugs. Um, you know, uh, there are no doubt moments in the life of a beast of burden, uh, which, are, which are cruel, but having a choice of existing or not existing, I will always uh, choose life. So... I guess the final thing I would say to you is that, you know, we, we suffer a bit from the fact that we are uh, two degrees removed from the abattoir where the dirty end of the business takes place. So we don't actually see it. We don't see the, you know, steel pinion driven into the forehead of the steer uh, to kill it as quickly uh, and painlessly as possible, but nonetheless not without pain. Um, and so we kind of get used to the idea that the steak just appears on the butcher's tray almost by magic. And I say to you, that's one of the reasons why I am a defender and supporter of hunting, although I'm not a hunter myself. Uh, it hasn't been a significant part of my family's tradition, but I am a supporter of those who hunt. And not least because you need a cohort of the population, particularly males, who have had the experience of pulling the trigger to kill a living thing uh, to prepare any nation or culture for the risk, as real or remote as it may be, that they may be called upon to defend their family, uh, their tribe and their nation. So, ladies and gentlemen, I say to you uh, that I wish to give thanks to the noble beasts of the earth who give up their substance and their flesh uh, for our health uh, for the development of our brains, they provide the amino acids, which has taken us from a pre-human to a homo sapien. And I want to say to you, enjoy this Christmas, enjoy uh, the plenty uh, of the animal kingdom, which according to Genesis is given to us uh, by God. You're on the Ross Cameron Show. And we'll be right back. Rick Munn on TNT Radio. There was a, a statement that I saw last week that I thought was quite interesting from one of these uh, web spokespeople, the World Economic Forum spokesperson. And one thing that she said that I thought was quite interesting was she said, you know, um, there has been a little bit of a tail off with people buying into the vaccine narrative. And she blamed that on people like us spreading so-called missing disinformation. She said that climate change was a little bit too much of an abstract concept for people to really grab and get their heads around. So that's not really taking off the way they want to either. And then she said something very interesting. She said, you know what, when the water crisis comes, people will understand that because it's simple and everybody needs water. And if you don't have water for a few days at a time, you'll know all about it. So maybe, you know, we're hypothesizing a little bit about what's, what it's going to take to grab people and bring them back on board again with a World Economic Forum type narrative. Could this be what it is? Locked and loaded with Rick Munn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website thelightpaper.co.uk and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. They've launched a new service called Wake Up Your Neighbours where you can get copies delivered to the streets right around you if you don't want to do it yourself. 
the light paper. Not for right, just right so far. Thelightpaper.co.uk Ladies and gentlemen, today's news talk. News and information. TNT Radio. Well, good day. Welcome back. And it's my pleasure now to introduce you uh, to the great commercial mind, the entrepreneurial vision, and the beautiful vows of Igor Sidelska, Managing Director of Magnet Capital and one of Australia's crypto pioneers. Welcome, Igor. Great to be here. Appreciate the very kind words. Well, look, um, I think we'll, you know, crypto is a, uh, well, I thought I'd ask you to give us, uh, you know, Christmas year in review for uh, the crypto world. But before we do that, just tell us a little bit about Igor Sedelska. How did you find yourself, you know, lots and lots of people have taken an interest, have maybe even splashed out on a bit of uh, crypto, a bit Bitcoin or something. Plenty have lost their shirts. A few have made a very great deal of money. But before we get into uh, the blockchain, uh, let's get into Igor. Tell us how your um, fascination, obsession uh, with crypto began. Well, it's a uh, quite funny story, really. So I am a computer science graduate from the University of East Anglia uh, in, in, in the UK. And much like many of my peers, I try to ignore Bitcoin for as long as possible. Uh, these This internet money or this, this new value transfer uh, digital value transfer really wasn't that interesting. And I was trying to avoid it. And every time that I tried to avoid it, it kept coming back up because of its core principles, because it's completely immutable, because it's completely decentralized. It's not owned by any one party, any any government institution. It's not controlled by any one person or one corporation. And all of these things were were just really interesting. The fact that you could build something that is truly unique that has has never existed before just kept dragging me back in and back then this was 2012 2013 it was a very nascent market uh you could you could still uh mine bitcoin on your laptop and your computer and in order to process transactions you had to code in transactions there was no fancy ui there were no exchanges there was no online wallets and uh i really started from from the basics we were mining back then and uh uh we've got some good anecdotes from from that period we were very very young this is 10 years ago we we we, we were mining and shut off the power to the street we we were mining and uh, because we didn't know what we were doing, we got a, a thirteen thousand pound electricity bill for the month. So <laughs> you really, you really went through this this period of exploration where you're just trying to figure out what this thing even is, and you think that you make money, and then you don't make money, and then ends up costing you a lot of money. So you, you you keep going backwards and forwards. But something about the technology, something about the principles of why it existed, the reason that it was born in the midst of the global financial crisis when banks were getting their second and third potential bailout. Uh, this thing was created that had a finite number 
of tokens. Uh, in, in, in Bitcoin's case, it was 21 million that could only ever exist. And that was programmed in that. All of those principles are really interesting. And I bought my first Bitcoin at 80 pounds and then it went to about seven, $700 or $900 US. And you think you're a genius and you, you, you think you're, you're the gift to, uh, to the investment world. And then subsequently, because of the volatility, you lose 90% of it. And you wonder what the hell it is that you've been doing for the last couple of months where you haven't seen sunlight and you've been in a basement trying to figure this technology out. So that's really where we came from. Really humble, young beginnings. Uh, and that was 2012, 2013. And then uh, over the over the next five years until I until I met my co-founder, Benjamin Selamaya and started Magnet, it was really a period of discovery really deep understanding of Bitcoin, the blockchain, what it, why it's here, what impact it's going to have on technology and the internet moving forward. Uh, and then subsequently in, in 2017, uh, we, we formed Magnet Capital, the first, the first crypto hedge fund to have a, a ASIC licensed intermediate license uh, in November. Well, look, we have to say, because we are on this show, libertarian and empiricist, we follow the numbers. Uh, we, we don't always finish with the numbers, but we always start with the numbers. And as I read it, your magnet capital fund is described as a high conviction, long only strategy focused on store of value infrastructure uh DeFi and meta assets tell us now you and you have returned let's get to you know the money shot i mean what has been going for six years what what return have you given investors so we've averaged 31 percent irr since inception so internal rate of return since inception uh during that period we also have distributed 138 percent of capital out to our investors so what that really means is if you invested $100,000 with us um, at the beginning of the fund, we would have paid you back $138,000 and we would have compounded your returns at 31% every year for six years. Okay, so you wind up taking uh, long positions in not a vast number. It's not like you're in 50. You're in about, what, just... 15, uh, 10, 15, what you call high conviction positions uh, in a highly volatile sector and based on, you say, four key investment pillars, um, store of value and infrastructure, I think we can understand. What do we mean by decentralized finance and meta? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, we, as our background, we're not traders we are not uh, fundamentals quantitative analysis uh, uh, um, traders of uh, of assets trying to to lock in profits as soon as possible what we do is take a really deep understanding of the of the protocols we take a deep understanding of the teams and what they're trying to achieve we look at the technology that they're building on top of, and we look at the timing for when they're trying to enter the market. And that's what we mean by a high conviction, long only thesis. It means that we don't short the market. We don't need to borrow and lend in order to get our returns. 
all of our funds, uh, we have four of them now, all of our funds are 100% liquid. We don't take illiquid positions because we don't feel that you need to take these external risk factors in order to gain a very, very attractive return. And we based our thesis on four key factors that we think are going to drive this market. The first is store of value, as you mentioned, pretty self-explanatory. The second is infrastructure, which is building the rails of the decentralized internet. That looks like smart contracts platforms, layer ones, layer twos, or it can look like interoperability. So basically allowing you to transact value from one blockchain to another blockchain. Decentralized finance, the third pillar, is really about reinventing the way that we do finance, the way that we do payments and remittance, the way that we engage with borrowers and lenders. It really democratizes any access to financial instruments. The reason that that is such an important pillar for us is because whether you're a Wall Street banker or a, or a farmer in the middle of the country, you've got the same information asymmetry, you've got the same access to tools. There's no blocking, there's no wealth requirement, there's no private banker that can give you special terms. Everyone is equitable across the board. Decentralized finance, yeah, and just Go lastly, on decentralized, decentralized yeah. finance um, is probably the biggest use case in, in, uh, in crypto assets at the moment. And the biggest use case, the biggest, the biggest, uh, uh, and, and probably largest value proposition that exists right now is stable coins. Quite simply, it's just US dollars that have a one-for-one parity transmitting from one country or one person to another in real time. So instead of doing international transfers, T plus two, using intermediary banking, you've got an immediate value transfer that happens in about 15 seconds. And that is to the tune of billions of dollars a day. Well, look, it's it's um, this question of uh, transferability, um, utility to execute a transaction uh, is sort of, to me, where the rubber hits the road. And, you know, we ought to begin by admitting that the world of fiat currency has got some very significant limitations uh, in its utility uh, and risks. And, Having just made a short trip to um, Buenos Aires, uh, the challenges involved in just getting transferring Australian dollars into pesos um, are quite material, and you wind up spending a long time in a queue. Uh, you get to the end, and uh, you know the Western Union will tell you, "Oh well, no, you can't just use your credit card to buy pesos. You've got to download an app. You've got to register. You've got to transfer funds from your bank account into the app, and then from the app to us, and then we'll give you pesos." You know, uh, is it any wonder that there is a thriving uh, black market? Um, but talk to us about uh, the emerging sort of trends in the usability of crypto to settle an ordinary transaction, whether to buy a meal in a restaurant, to pay a gym membership, to buy a house, uh, you know, to fill up with uh, petrol mm. at the gas station. Is it getting easier to use crypto? Totally, totally. So, what you would have seen in Argentina is people really struggling to figure out how much 
to charge for, for products and services because you have a country that has 150% inflation annually, which is completely out of control. And if you are a baker sim simply selling bread, you have to change your prices every day, if not multiple times a day, because you just have no idea how much your flour or your yeast or your sugar is going to cost in one, two or three days. And that becomes incredibly difficult. So one of the easy solutions, one of the quick solutions is just simple remittance. What stable coins allow you to do is put any currency at any value on the blockchain and allow you to be able to transmit that value within seconds. So you don't need to do foreign exchange interactions anymore. You don't need to get your Australian dollars and try and try and get pesos and then figure out how many pesos it's going to be to get coffee. You simply use an app or you use the existing rails, use the, the card systems that are available to you and you can pay with stable coins. Now, there are countless apps that exist at the moment that you can do that with tokens. So not just stable coins, where it's a one-to-one -one representation of fiat currency in a bank account. You can do that with Bitcoin. You can do that with Litecoin, with Ethereum. You can do that with any currency. So right now, it's app-based and you can tap and go. You can even put it on a credit card and it automatically redeems your crypto, whatever that may be, for dollars that the merchant wants to accept. Okay, well... One of the trends uh, that we see, it is said that, um, you know, uh, every good idea begins as, um, you know, described as a really stupid idea, um, you know, and a dangerous idea and, um, uh, you know, and gradually the vested interests. I remember, I think it was the CEO of JP Morgan said that, you know, Bitcoin was a Ponzi scheme. And originally the major bankers sort of tackled and piled on to create fear. Uh, yet now, since the, the technology has survived this long um, and seems to be growing in influence, we find they've done a flip now they want to come back and try and own uh, the platforms. Um, and in particular, we see uh, an interesting question for Argentina, which, as you rightly point out, has got this massive inflation problem. Um, you know, crypto represents, I think, a, quite an interesting element of the total uh, fiscal monetary policy of the government. Uh, and we see quite a range of governments around the world saying, I don't know, well, we must now have, if you like, a reserve bank government-controlled uh, uh, crypto um, option. So tell us about who owns uh, crypto and how you see, as an industry, and how you see the trends going forward. Mm. Well, the, the most beautiful thing about something like Bitcoin um, and, and even digital assets as in their entirety is this, this, this natural fact that they're decentralized, which means they're not owned by any one government or corporation or institution or individual. They're, they're, the owners are the node participants, so people running the code, these farms of computers that are helping process transactions on the network in Bitcoin's case. And that means that 
that means that Argentina or El Salvador or any other any other country can trust something like Bitcoin as a store of value because they don't need to trust the US, China or Russia. They know that that in Bitcoin's case, there will only ever be 21 million coins. So they know if they have a thousand coins, they will have a certain percentage of that 21 million that exists. And that's why it's so attractive to these central bankers or even nation states to hold some sort of crypto asset. Now, it's probably not the right solution for everyone. Um, it really does. It really does depend. But for countries that have uh, runaway inflation or an instability in their in their currency, it makes a lot of sense to have a global store of value as part of your central banking effort. Usually, that ends up being the U.S. dollar. But given the instability of uh, of U.S. debt, given the instability of the 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 uh, the US fiat system. And we've seen that more recently than, you know, over the last 10 years, uh, people are starting to shy away from it. So now is what we feel crypto's make or break in moment. And we're not the only ones. Grayscale, ARK, BlackRock, VanEck, Invesco, Fidelity all agree and all of them have launched products in, in BlackRock's and Fidelity's case and all of the above. It's a Bitcoin ETF. So people are really starting to look at this technology and start to adopt it internally. Well, look, um, thank you for that. I should uh, mention that the uh, one of your great fans and advocates is the chairman of the Double Bay Country Club. Uh, he regards you as the example par excellence of a hardworking, smart, straight-shooting entrepreneur who is delivering value to investors, and do, but while doing some very creative and innovative things. You've been on the very front edge, but you've managed to keep your shirt. Indeed, I suspect it's going to be quite a nice Christmas or perhaps Hanukkah for uh, Igor Sadelsky and your partner. So congratulations. Uh, thanks for educating the audience of The Ross Cameron Show. Amazing to be here and good to see you again. Appreciate it. Bless you. All right, there you go, Igor Sadelsky. You can go to Magnet Capital if you want to learn more about the investment offering. You're on The Ross Cameron Show. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. In a shocking development that surprised no one, Hunter Biden failed to show up for his congressional deposition today. Moreover, California Representative Eric Swalliswell aided and abetted Hunter thumbing his nose at the Congress by working with Hunter's attorney so Hunter could avoid testifying. Will Hunter be held in contempt of Congress? Well, if so, so what? So was Eric Holder, nothing was done. But you see, when Democrats are in charge and they hold somebody in contempt of Congress, well, their door gets busted down, they get taken out at 5 a.m. with CNN there to broadcast the whole proceedings, the way Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, and Alex Jones were treated. Will Hunter be treated the same way? <laughs> <laughs> you funny man. Of course. And Alex Jones were treated. Will Hunter be treated the same way? <laughs> you funny man. Of course he won't. But if there's any justice in the world, 
Santa won't be bringing Hunter another laptop this Christmas. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Sometimes life can be overwhelming, and suicide may seem like the only way to relieve the pain. Beyond Now is an evidence-based app created by Beyond Blue to help you cope when suicidal thoughts start to appear. You can use it to create an easy-to-follow plan that is personal to you and includes steps like know your warning signs so you can act early, make your environment safe by removing harmful items, activities you can do or people you can be with to distract yourself from suicidal thoughts, reminders of things that make you feel strong, some of these steps might be tough to fill out, and that's okay. It can be helpful to make or share your safety plan with a trusted friend, family member, or mental health professional. You might feel like you're alone, but help is available. If you're worried you can't stay safe, use the red telephone icon to call your emergency contacts. Download the free Beyond Now app today to create your personal safety plan. You're listening to Ross Cameron on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Well, good day and welcome back. Um, in just the eight or nine minutes before we have a hard break from the news, I just thought I'd, I'd give you one reflection on another subject, which I think is worthy of discussion and provoked by the election of a new Premier in Queensland, not elected by the people of Queensland, but by the Labor caucus, Indeed, I understand, essentially chosen by two trade union leaders uh, in a back room uh, over a cigar. And the bloke's name is um, Stephen Miles. And um, the point about I would make about Stephen Miles, I, went, I, I prefer on the Ross Cameron show to be positive, uh, to look for the silver lining, um, but I have to admit to you uh, that Stephen Miles, while he possesses the kind of retail political qualifications of being able to put on a suit and tie, of being able to, you know, string together a coherent sentence, he probably knows how to, you know, swipe his opal card to get on a bus in, in Brisbane but when he actually opens his mouth and says, well, what is my mission? You know, for what purpose have I sought this high office? He says, um, the single most important uh, commitment of his leadership will be, quote, greater action on climate change. And, you know, um, I would say, and I think it's the Bible. I think it's Proverbs. I could be wrong. Perhaps one of our listeners will correct me. That says, better uh, to remain silent than open your mouth and reveal yourself as a fool. Um, I'll just tell you that this bloke is a completely interchangeable widget uh, who is going to provide over the... Um, you know, perhaps more gradual, perhaps more rapid destruction of the productive uh, resources of his state. And, you know, um, I am, as a member of the Australian Libertarian Party, New South Wales Division, to be distinguished from the Liberal Party, 
which I formerly belonged to before I got kicked out, um, which has a beautiful mission statement, uh, but an absolutely appalling record uh, of adhering to any of its uh, core philosophical commitments. And um, we libertarians not only uh, reject um, the policy instruments chosen for action on climate change, uh, we reject the science. I mean, we are full on heretics because we don't believe that it is, there is any climate science. We see political science. Uh, we see a vast flow of subsidies. We see a huge motive for the state to take ever greater control over our lives. We see the next great having locked us all down for hundreds and hundreds of days, uh, Melbourne achieving, I think, the unwanted distinction of the most timid, cowardly, under the doona, give up white flag brigade in the world, uh, a far cry, you know, from the man from Snowy River uh, or the G-Bunk Polo Club. Uh, but Queensland um, is very much heading down the same path. And so here you've got a situation where the, the, the whole of the eastern seaboard is looking down the barrel of actual energy electricity rationing in major capital cities, Brisbane, uh, Sydney, uh, Melbourne, and certainly South Australia. Um, you know, and yet we have this cult-like adherence to a pure dogma, a kind of priestly caste. And one of the reasons why you know the thing is bogus is the amount of work that has to go in to keeping the bull story alive. So you literally can never pick up a copy of the Guardian newspaper, the Sydney Morning Herald, even now, regrettably, the Australian, the ABC, without getting a lecture, a sermon from the priesthood on climate change. And when I was, you know, in the air, I guess it was, you know, it's sort of like maybe 15 hours in one direction and 17 coming back, depending upon the prevailing winds. Um you know, you see the over that vast ocean, the Pacific, you know, the biggest ocean and indeed the singular geographic sort of um, feature of the entire planet uh, is the Pacific Ocean. Uh, and you, you climb to 30,000 feet, you're travelling at 900 kilometres an hour. Um, you're at minus between minus 40 and minus 50 outside Celsius, Celsius and uh, uh, Fahrenheit are about the same. And you are going to tell me that that vast envelope of atmosphere across this immense ocean up to 10 kilometres above the earth uh, which doesn't even face a ceiling then, but just sort of the fine air dissipates gradually into space. And you're going to tell me that the activity of human beings is the principal term determinant and trigger for the temperature of this planet. When humans are, you know, carbon dioxide is 3% of all atmospheric gases, roughly, 
And out of the 3%, human beings produce 3% of it. You're telling me, you wish me to believe that humans, this, this is just an ancient bone pointing, anthropogenic, all about me, look at me. It's like Kath and Kim, look at me, look at me. Um, you know, this is one of the greatest uh, bull stories ever told. Uh, there is no science uh, to climate change. Uh, it's there is only politics. And indeed, if you took out all of the advocates who are on the tit, who are receiving a financial benefit for advocating for it, all of the academics, all the media organisations which get paid by governments to advertise climate and carbon programs, you know, it would be uh, virtual silence out there. It would be one hand clapping. The, the, the whole theory would collapse in a moment. Like the weekend at Bernie's, the taxpayer funding is propping this thing up like a twitching corpse that will eventually collapse. And, you know, the new Premier of Queensland is frankly the dumbest kid in the remedial class. We'll go to the news. You're on The Ross Cameron Show.